Okay, it says it's live, and he's checking, so there it is right now. Go ahead. Shemek. I hate double-minded men, but I love your law. You are my refuge and my shield. Put my hope in you. me, you will be Sustain me according to my your promise, and I will live. I let my hope be dead. Hold me, I will deliver. Regard your decree. You reject all who stray from your decree. For their deceitfulness is vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your statutes. Flesh trembles in fear of standing awe of it. Hey, good. All right, let's see. We're going to move that to the next one. I in. Verse 14, the hiding place. Oh, what's her name? Carrie Tim. Carrie Tim. Boom. She wouldn't like his reading of that. You are my hiding place and my, my shield. Refuge my, shield. my refuge. Refuge. She yeah. said hiding place. Hiding place. <laughs> All right. Let's see here. We've got uh, some prayer requests. Oh, Lothar wants to come back to the U.S. He uh, had to retire medically, so uh, he wants to come back. And if he can rent a room from somebody, that's what he's looking for. I don't know how long he wants to stay, but if anybody has a room that can they can rent, then... Uh, Lothar would like to come, and let's see here, um, on YouTube, just so everybody is aware of this, um, we got some grief with one of our updates from, oh, it's two months ago, it was back in March, and uh, a month ago, they tagged it, and they said that if it happens again, they're going to take us down, all that kind of stuff, so I just deleted all of the updates, every one of them, it took me 388 updates, I deleted them all, and uh, we will, I have a new channel only for updates, and so uh, if you want the link to that so that it's ready for you on Sunday, just send me an email and I'll send you the link to it. Or just wait till Sunday and I'll have a one-minute video to tell you where to go to with a link provided. So just so you know, don't panic. It's just uh, I, it's not worth losing the live stream and all of our sermons in the church, you know, for updates. They they last one week and then they're over. So um, yeah, if you're looking for the updates, that's where they are. They're gone. And uh, it will have, like I said, a new channel. It will no longer be called the Superior Word Prophecy Update. And uh, this is the world we live in. Bruce, let's see here. Um, uh, he has four separate life-threatening conditions, and yet he is using them to tell people about Jesus. But he's asking for prayer. He's over in uh, Australia, very upbeat person. And uh, he sent me a photo, and he's got this beautiful beard. Um, so, yeah, anyway, uh, keep Bruce in prayer. And then Drew is struggling with accepting a special job in the government because obviously the direct he wants to do, he's already a government employee, but he's been offered some special job. He didn't tell me what, but uh, I, he'd like prayer about making that choice. And he's also struggling with a Christ-like walk. And I said, don't worry, so am I. So, you know, everybody's on their own level with this. And uh, his specific thing was that he's angry at the way the world is and i say well i do research for updates all day long i'm really angry all day long I, the thoughts going through my mind are not christ-like at times i gotta tell you i'm very very upset with the direction of the world but you know he gives more grace um daniel i you know he didn't ask me to say this and i just it was on the online prayer uh thing today and i just feel so bad for him he lost his little brother so we want to keep daniel in prayer 
And uh, Sharon is asking for prayer to retain the word when she hears it. And she uh, just uh, has a tough time. But I told her also, don't worry, I forgot a lot more than I know. I mean, you just, it's hard to retain the word. As long as you remember the key points, the key points, and we go through them all the time. I say them all the time. Salvation is eternal. Christ is God, you know, things like that. As long as you can remember the core doctrine, the rest of it, you know, but she wants prayer just so that she can retain the word better. And then Becky is uh, getting over uh, her sickness. She's on antibiotics still, and we're hoping that uh, that will take care of her uh, issues. So we'll keep all of them in prayer. Yeah. That I don't know. I can send her an email and they might be listening. And yeah, Oh, yeah. I, I have no idea. But uh, we'll, we'll check that out. Um, let's see here. We have also, uh, today is, I don't know what day it is. It's 14th, 15th, 15th, April 15th. He nearly drowned three times. John Harper was born in Scotland in 1872 to a Christian family. When he was presented with the message of John 3:16, at the age of 13, he believed in Jesus and received everlasting life. When he was 18, he had a powerful vision of the cross of Christ. At that moment, he committed his life to bringing the message of the cross to others. The very next day, he began to preach in his village, urging all his hearers to be reconciled to God. He made every street corner his pulpit. His desire to win souls to Christ was unmatched, becoming his all-consuming purpose. An evangelist friend, W.D. Dunn, recalled often seeing Harper lying on his face before God, pleading with him to give me souls or I die, sobbing as if his heart would break. At 32, he had a near-drowning experience when he was caught on a leaky ship in the Mediterranean. He said of the experience, the fear of death did not for one minute disturb me. I believed that sudden death would be sudden glory. In 1911, he spent three months preaching at Moody Memorial Church in Chicago during a revival and received an enthusiastic response. He was asked to return for three more months of meetings beginning in April 1912. Originally scheduled to sail on the Lusitania, he sailed on the Titanic after a schedule change. When he informed his church of his intent to return to Chicago, a parishioner begged him not to go, saying that he had been praying and felt strongly that something ominous would happen if he went. He pleaded with Harper, but to no avail. Harper felt that there was a divine purpose for his trip, and Harper went ahead with his plans. The night before the ship sank, Harper was seen leading a man to Christ on the deck. Afterward, he looked to the west, and seeing a glint of red in the sunset, he said, it will be beautiful in the morning. Moments later, <laughs> excuse me, the Titanic struck an iceberg, and the sea poured in. Mayhem ensued as most people struggled to save their own lives. As they loaded lifeboats, John Harper shouted, let the women, children, and unsaved into the lifeboats. He then removed his life preserver and gave it to another man. At 2.20 a.m. on April 15, 1912, the Titanic disappeared beneath the water. Harper and many others were left floundering in the, <laughs> excuse me, icy waters. One man who was clinging to a piece of wood saw Harper struggling in the water. Harper shouted, are you saved? When the man answered no, Harper quoted Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The man did not respond and they lost sight of each other. A few minutes later, the current brought them together again. Harper asked this, the answer, uh, he asked the same question again, urging the man to believe in Jesus. And he received the same answer again. Harper then slipped beneath the water never to resurface. 
The man did put his faith in Christ and was later rescued by a lifeboat. He testified that he was John, <laughs> John Harper's last convert. After the sinking of the ship, relatives and friends of the passengers gathered outside of the White Star office in Liverpool, England. As news came in about the passengers, names were placed on one of two lists, known to be saved or known to be lost. The voyage had begun with three classes of passengers, but now it was reduced to only two, saved or lost. John Harper's name was placed on the list for those known to be lost, but it was on the saved list in heaven. Huh. John Harper faced death heroically and without fear because he never lost sight of the passionate purpose in life to win soul, souls for Christ. Imagine those last horrifying moments above aboard the Titanic. If you had been there, what do you think you would have done? And it says in 1 John 4:18, perfect love expels all fear. Well, that's a good testimony to hang on to. Here's an interesting piece of that. You would uh, email me on Tuesday to say that, you know, pulling everything off of Fifteen minutes later, at least two communications going. The, uh, the updates are all gone. Oh. What happened? Wow. Yeah, that's it. Well, you know, it, it is what it is. And we got up, I think, to, you know, when I deleted it, it was like 2,000 hits or something. So people saw it, and they're not worried about it. And those that didn't, I, you know, I did get a few emails this week. But uh, uh, whenever, you know, uh, Sunday comes, we'll we'll set out the uh, the links and stuff. And hopefully it won't hurt too much. But uh, as I'll say on Sunday, I'm glad I haven't given up my part-time jobs yet. So I've been thinking about it, but I'm certainly not going to do that now because you got you don't know what's looming over your head. Oh, well, um, the Lord will provide. He always does. Okay, we're in the epistle to the Ephesians. Yes. We're in chapter one of that. And, uh, and uh, yeah, um, what's that? Oh, we got to pray. Heavenly Father, we certainly uh, thank you for a chance to uh, come into your presence. And we pray for these people that we mentioned here, uh, helping people with uh, their needs and uh, also, uh, you know, certainly helping people with their memory so that they can retain the word. and. Uh, especially the important parts of doctrine. But, Lord, we pray about that as well. And we pray for those who are sick. We pray for the, those that are traveling. We've got some people that are traveling right now. And uh, Daniel, poor Daniel, lost his little brother. Lord, we lift him up for comfort in that and the whole family that is associated with that. And, Lord, we just thank you that uh, we are able still in this country to open your word and to read it. And we're praying that it will be handled properly and that the doctrine will be sound. And then if it's not, I would pray that you would erase what is said from their ears and lead them to the right uh, understanding of each verse that we go over. And we pray this, that you will be glorified, Lord. Your word is precious, and we certainly don't want it to be misused. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, boy. Wow. Okay, 120, but you go wherever you want. Yeah, I'm going to start at the end of the paragraph there. Um, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks to you, remembering you in my prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be 
likeness, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called the riches of his glorious inheritance in the same, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working mighty strength which he extended, exerted, excuse me, in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him, right hand. Okay, very close. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Then it just says the heavenlies. I mean, it's just, that's an inserted word either way. Let's see here. The words now explain what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power of the previous verse. The words now in this verse, verse 20, explain what it, that means at verse 19. The which of this verse refers especially to the working of the previous, where it says, uh, what was that, 20? Uh, which he worked, okay? The which uh, of this verse refers especially to the working of the previous. This marvelously is described by Albert Barnes. He says, The power which was then exerted was as great as that of creation. I've heard one other person say that same thing about this verse, probably read Albert Barnes' commentary, but what he's talking about is verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power, power of God toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Albert Barnes comes to the conclusion that that power to raise Christ was then exerted was as great as that of creation. Now, if that is true and you think it through, you know, we live on a world where we can split the atom and we can produce great amounts of energy. And all of the energy that was ever produced on the planet Earth in all of history doesn't compare to a moment of energy expended on one of the giant red stars. And they're much smaller than a single solar system, and they're smaller than a galaxy, and on and on, and we've got billions of galaxies. But God spoke the entire universe into existence with just the power of his spoken word, okay? And Albert Barnes is equating the power that it took to raise Christ because all of creation has fallen. And if you think of it logically, he is the one to redeem all of creation through the resurrection. So I could agree with that analysis. And this is when Albert Barnes wrote this long before he knew that the universe was as big as it is. <clears throat> it was imparting, this is still Albert Barnes, it was imparting life to a cold and mangled frame. It was to open again the arteries and veins and teach the heart to beat and the lungs to heave. It was to diffuse vital warmth through the rigid muscles and to communicate to the body the active functions of life. It is impossible to conceive of a more direct exertion of power than in raising up the dead, and there is no more striking illustration of the nature of conversion than in such a resurrection. So very marvelously well worded by Albert Barnes, and as I said, all creation, all creation is redeemed through Christ, and because all creation has fallen, you have to agree with the analysis. In the resurrection, God's mighty power was on display in such a marvelous way that it becomes the believer's very point of hope. We can understand creation because we can see it, we can analyze it, and we can contemplate it. In doing so, we understand the marvelous majesty of the Creator. 
I just talked about some of the things in creation. I mean, the things that we see, a volcano spews out ash and it, you know, boils over and there's heat and there's wind and there's, you know, storms that are being generated above volcanoes in the ash clouds. You can see these beautiful storms with lightning being produced and it's nothing. It's just this teeny little thing that, you know, it's like a firecracker compared to what's going on in our own sun from moment to moment. We can consider how immense his power, God's power, must be by that which he has created. Just look around and we can get a sense of it. You know, you're sitting at home and you know a storm is coming, but it's clear and the wind is real calm. And all of a sudden, when you're sitting there, a lightning goes off and it scares you right out of your pants because it, it all of a sudden there's this power that wasn't there. And it's just a fleeting thing of power. That's all it is. But it, to us, because we're taking it from our perspective, we can see how marvelous it is. And the Bible speaks of that. You know, the uh, fire of God came down and killed Job's family or his flocks or whatever. And we think of that as a great power. But when you put it in comparison to what God has done, and you think about it from that perspective, and not just what he's done right now, but as I said earlier, if you took all of the power that's been generated on earth since the beginning and you were to put it all together, it would be a lot of power. It would be a lot of power in the potential power. If we can do it with one atom of uranium, imagine how much we could do with all of the nuclear fish, fissile material that we have on planet Earth, how the number of bombs and explosions we could make. And it's really nothing. It's literally nothing compared to what God has done in other parts of the universe, okay? The same is true with the resurrection of Christ for the believer. In the resurrection, we can understand the power of God in a new way. Nothing, nothing, not even death, could hold back God's power in the reanimation of the body of Christ. As this is so, then if we are in Christ, then we can be assured of this in us as well. We can trust that the power of God which worked in Christ will also work in like manner. I'll just tell you, um, I was telling you earlier to just understand the core doctrines of the faith. And somebody emailed me this week, and uh, this person listens to the weekly Bible studies. And, you know, I always feel bad about repeating things. I know I have a lot of repetition, especially in things like eternal salvation, and, and you're sealed with the Spirit. And I say it week to week. And apparently I need to do that because this individual emailed me and said, you know, I was listening to this pastor, and the pastor was... Uh, let me ask you a question before I give my analysis. I'm not going to ask you what the parable of the ten virgins is about, okay? Ask you a direct question. What is the parable of the ten virgins not about? It's not about the rapture. It's not about the rapture. It's not even about bigger picture. The rapture, yes, but. The, the, the rapture the, comprises what? Oh, it's the, it's the, the people of, of the, uh, the, the. No, 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 no. No. The church. The parable of the ten virgins is not about the church, okay? So uh, after listening to the studies, uh, she listened to a pastor that was talking about the parable of the ten virgins, and he was dividing them up into two categories. Okay? And the analysis was he was inserting things that were completely not in the Bible. You know, and this is the problem because we look at people in the pulpit and we say, that person knows theology. He's obviously trained because he's in a pulpit. I can tell you that is the worst possible analysis of people in the pulpit. When I went to the 
the Southern Evangelical Seminary and Bible College that I attended, most of the people that were there had no idea what Scripture taught. They had no idea. They didn't know what the statement of faith that they signed, the tenets in it, were about. They just signed them so they could join this college. They had no idea. And they left that college knowing Christian philosophy. They knew uh, Christian apologetics, but they had no idea because the, Bi the, the uh, Bible college and seminary did not teach the Bible. A couple courses you took and that's it. Okay. You know, I, with people that don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. And she's a missionary and she works with people that are missionaries and they have no idea. So never trust somebody in the pulpit to be a specialist just because they're in the pulpit. I, what's that? Well, I was here. I took it online and I had to go for four classes. I went two times. So I was up there a total of about two months. But um, uh, I did not attend in class. Okay. I did it from here. But um, I, I can assure you that they wanted you to know your Bible. It's not a problem with the seminary, but that is not their focus. Their focus was to give you theological education. They expected you to learn the Bible and to know what the Bible said. So when somebody stands and gives a sermon on the parable of the ten virgins, and they tell you that this is dealing with the church, and then they tell you that you could be one of the people that is not going to be raptured, which is the basic thing and she emailed and she said uh, this person emailed and said i think i may be one of them that's not going and this is the problem this is the problem with listening to people and trusting them you learn the bible and remember the core doctrine my heart broke for this person i immediately responded and uh, this person i've come to like very much okay but I want you to know that if you are saved, and I, I, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say it again, apparently, week after week. If you are saved, if you have come to Jesus Christ, you are saved, and you will never lose that, and you will be going out at the rapture. There is no second rapture. There's no secret rapture. There's no person that will be left behind that is called on Jesus. None. Not one person. And that goes all the way back for 2,000 years. People that have died and been in the grave for 2,000 years, not one of them will be forgotten by the Lord. If they believe the simple gospel, that Christ died for their sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again, they will be raptured, and you will be too, okay? So I want you to know that if you, uh, I said, the first thing I said in my response was, remember the context. Remember the context. Who is being spoken to? Under what dispensation? And what is the surrounding context of that passage? And I can absolutely assure you that if somebody teaches you that anything in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, especially Matthew 24, 25, that, all of that, they're saying that that's church age doctrine. You should probably not watch them again. Okay. I, I recommend that highly because that is not. Jesus came to do something. What did Jesus come to do? He came to fulfill the law. He was born under the law and he fulfilled the law. And we know that he was born without sin because of the virgin birth, the incarnation. Father is God. He did not receive the sin from his heavenly father, and therefore circumcision is done. The cutting of the sin nature is done in him. But the purpose, especially of the three synoptic gospels, please always remember this context, is Jesus dealing, interacting with the people of Israel. He even specifically said, I have not come except to the uh, house, the lost sheep of Israel, the house, the lost sheep of Israel, the house of Israel. Okay, I know I blew that there, but that's what he said. Okay, he has come to Israel and he made an exception for a woman that had greater faith than all the people in Israel. She said, you know, the, the little dogs eat the crumbs under the table and 
In other words, the crumbs are falling and they're eating. Why can't I have some of those crumbs? And he said, great is your faith, O woman, and off you go. She's healed, okay? But that wasn't his ministry. His ministry was to the house of Israel. When he spoke in the Synoptic Gospels, right up until the time he was crucified, he was speaking to Israel. He never referred to the church. I know the King Jimmy Virgin version says that the church, take it to the church. The word is, uh, it simply means an assembly, okay? That's all it means is an assembly. And it was the assembly of people that he was talking to. He wasn't talking about the church as the translation states, okay? He was dealing with Israel under the law in order to fulfill the law. Okay, that is especially with the three. Now, John is a different type of gospel with a different purpose, but the synoptic gospels are specifically given to show us what is going to happen with Israel in relation to the law, in relation to the Messiah, and in relation to those things in the future. If it didn't happen during his life and he's speaking about something coming in the future, it is with Israel. Okay, the rest of the world is involved in that in the book of Revelation, but it is focused on Israel. Okay, that is an important point to remember because if you, I've said this many, many times, if you mix dispensations, if you take and you mix your dispensations, it's not you may have contradictions, you will have contradictions. You are going to have contradictory theology. One of them that always comes to mind when I say that, and it's so easy to think of, is when people get scared, it says, pray that you may stand before the Son of Man. Okay, and people will say that to you. They'll scare you with that one, especially in a sermon. You know, you need to pray that you may stand before, stand worthy, be found worthy before the Son of Man. That's what he said. Pray that you may be found worthy to stand before the Son of Man. That does not apply to us. You now have a contradiction in your theology, and the reason why is because Paul says that you are saved by the blood of Christ through faith. You are worthy. Not that you are intrinsically worthy, but you have now become worthy because of Christ. He has deemed you righteous. God has deemed you righteous because of the blood of Christ. So you will, it's not that you might, you will have a contradiction if you insert yourself into Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or into any time of the law. I've got to go back and I've got to observe the Sabbath. Well, that's contradiction because Paul says you don't have to observe the Sabbath. You will always have improper theology. And that's why going through the law of Moses the way we have been for the past 10 years is so important. It's to get the established baseline of what God is doing in redemptive history and why Jesus was needed and all of these types and shadows showing that he is the fulfillment of those things. If you don't know those things, then you can listen to a person standing in a pulpit saying things that... completely out of context because he does not understand proper theology and you will be led astray by that person. That's why we have Seventh-day Adventists. That's why we have Jehovah's Witnesses. And that's why we have Mormons is because people are not trained. Okay. And that's not the people's fault. People are people. You've got your job. You've got your life to live. But there should be enough understanding in people to say, that doesn't sound right at least that much, and you're never going to have that unless you have read your Bible three, four, five, eight, ten times. And you can do that in two years. You can have read the Bible ten times if you read it, uh, let's see, you'd have to read it an hour a day. If you read it 30 minutes a day, just 30 minutes a day, you're going to read your Bible at least twice in a year, okay? If you read it an hour a day, then you would have read it four times in a year. So in two years, you could be through eight times. And that's, that's just a beginning 
That's just the beginning because there is a lifetime of study in this book. But please understand these things is that we need to have our context down, but especially have the core doctrine down. Can I lose my salvation? No. Is Jesus God? Absolutely. These things are important to understand. There's all kinds of just core little doctrines. If you want to know most of them, not all of them, but most of them, I did a series on doctrines uh, last year, 10 doctrine sermons, and you can go watch those and you can get some of that doctrine out of there. They're very important to understand those basic things because if you don't get those right, you're going to have a problem. And that's being seen right in the words that we're looking at right now in the book of Ephesians. So let me go back and read the last paragraph and then we'll go on. In the resurrection, we can understand the power of God in a new way. Nothing, not even death, could hold back God's power in the reanimation of the body of Christ. As this is so, this is us in Christ. We have believed and we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise, the promise of our redemption. Okay? Until, how does he say it in 13 and 14? Let me read it. Uh, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, which is you, the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. It's not your glory that is being put on the line. It's God's glory. He is saying, I'm going to do this. His glory is on the line and he will perform. Absolutely. You will be taken out when God takes his people out. Okay. Um, so the reanimation of the body of Christ, as this is so, then if we are in Christ, then we can be assured of this as well. We can trust that the power of God which worked in Christ will also work in us in a like manner. Open up the first eight there. I want you to read so everybody can hear good. Open what? Eight. So Romans chapter eight, verse eleven. Romans eight, verse eleven. Okay, let me see. Oh, I'm way back in Luke. I gotta go the right direction. I went way too far. But real loud. But spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from it also give life to your mortal bodies. His spirit dwells in you. He's dwelling in you. He raised Christ from the dead. He will raise, raise you from the dead. The power of his spirit. The power. That's exactly what he's speaking about right here. Exactly. The power of God. It, and God is not going to neglect his promise to you because some preacher has mishandled the word of God and it's taken this and this is this was I'm not going to say which church it was you would be surprised if you heard this it was somebody filling in in a dispensational teaching church okay well I tell you what you know I, I I'm not going to say because I'm not here to slam everybody but that particular fill-in pastor don't listen to that guy again I don't know his name I don't know who you know but all I know is I told this lady just don't listen to that guy because the things that she was saying in the email just making stuff up. I mean, not even not even in scripture. It just you know he's formed his own little theology, and he's going to go out and tell people this nonsense. So just because somebody is in the pulpit, just because somebody is following after a famous preacher that you know has a big online presence, doesn't mean that the guy that's filling in for him has any idea at all of what's going on. And the preacher he filled in for, I'm not really keen on with several of his points of doctrine anyway. He teaches you know, the same thing. He does go off and mix dispensations and the like, but I'm not here to slam that guy because he's generally right in what he does, but, you know, he does a little bit of sensation, which I don't like, you know, or, well, it could be the rapture's going to happen on this day or, you know, that kind of stuff. There's no need for that. Anyway, it doesn't matter who it is. Don't email me asking who it is. It's just that you want to just be careful not to just simply trust people because they are in a position of authority. 
Joseph Smith was in a position of authority, and we've got millions of people on this planet following Mormonism, okay? Um, in this epistle, Paul highlights this marvelous moment, speaking of the resurrection of Christ, but then he goes beyond it. Christ, God raised Christ from the dead, but he also, as Paul says, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is a confirmation of Jesus' own words. Let me take you there. It says right here in Matthew chapter 28. Once again, I used bleach cleaning today, and so my fingers are missing their fingerprints. Um, 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority belongs to Jesus Christ, okay? He is sitting at the right hand of God. God does not have parts. That's not a means that God is sitting on a throne and Jesus is sitting next to him. Jesus is God. He is in the position of power of God. God is unseen. You'll never see him. He doesn't have parts, etc. okay? But Jesus Christ is sitting in that place of authority, okay? All power belongs to him. When I said this a minute ago, the synoptic gospels are speaking of Jesus' interaction with the people of Israel under the law, right up until he was about to be crucified. And on the night of his crucifixion, he said something. This is the covenant in my blood, the new covenant. I left off the word new. It's the new covenant in my blood. From that moment on, you can start putting yourself into the theology when it's proper. In the book of Acts, there are times where you won't want to do that, okay? Acts is a descriptive account. It doesn't prescribe anything. But when he said, this is the new covenant, and then we, when we call on Christ, it is under the Mosaic covenant? No, it's in the new covenant, okay? Yes, the covenant, the new covenant was promised in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31, 32, right in that area. I uh, make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It applies to them first and foremost. But we are partakers in the... Massachusetts is one of them. What kind of a state is Massachusetts? We are commonwealth. We are partakers in the commonwealth of Israel. Gentiles are brought into the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth. Does anybody understand what the term means? Because it's a big word, right? But it's two words, common and wealth. Everybody's sharing together in the commonwealth. That's why we, Paul says we are brought into the commonwealth of Israel. We are sharing in the blessings of Israel in the new covenant. Even though it was made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, specifically, we share in the commonwealth blessings of Israel. Okay, That does not mean that we're Israel. It doesn't mean that we've replaced Israel. It means that we share in what has been given to Israel. And someday they will get what they have been given. Okay, They just had never received it. But that is... Uh, I used Massachusetts. Does anybody know all the commonwealths in America? Okay, nobody gets a Maserati then. Um, what's that? Kentucky is a commonwealth, and I think there's one more. I didn't answer because I don't know two. I know that there. I, I know there's two, and I think there's three. But uh, you could look online. We'd have an answer while I'm doing this. Anyway, um, the confirmation of Jesus' words in Matthew 28:18. Christ at the hand of God, is in the power, the position of power and authority. It means that in him, in Jesus Christ, is all of the power of creation and resurrection. Once again, all of the power in this universe. You, if you've never watched it, you can go on YouTube and you can uh, look 
at uh, videos that start you out with, there are four commonwealths. What are they? Kentucky, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Virginia. Pennsylvania and Virginia. That's right. Okay. I probably would have gotten Virginia. I never would have gotten Pennsylvania. Um, four commonwealths. Um, uh, if you can go on uh, YouTube and you can look at videos and they're called like uh, perspectives of tens or 10% or, you know, and people will do, they'll start with a person laying on a piece of ground. Okay. And it will just say in the middle of a park. And then they go up in the picture, 10% magnitudes of 10 is what it's called. They'll go up 10% and you're up, you know, like 30 feet and you're looking and now there's a box with the person. You can still see them. The next magnitude of 10, it's like a little dot. The next magnitude of 10, and it goes on and on until you get to the outside of the universe, how big and powerful the universe is. And then they go back down, and finally they stop at magnitude 1, where the person is, and they start going magnitude minus. And they go down to the skin level of that person, and then into the skin. And they go down, down, down to things that are so small that we can only theorize about them. And the, all of that, you think of inside of that atom and you got these things that are spinning and inside of that are other things and other things there is power being exerted even at the dirted there and every single bit of that power if you look at that i know it's just a, a secular thing that they've done like carl sagan did one of them okay doesn't matter if you simply watch it and think god is in control of every single bit of the power being exerted in that atom and in that nuclear, uh, what is it, uh, Adam, there's three things going on in there. Anyway, inside of the next thing and the next thing. And he's aware of everything that's going on all the way down into levels that we can only speculate about. And then he's aware of everything on the macro level as well, all at the same time. All of it. And that was focused on Christ when he was resurrected. It had to be because all of creation has fallen then all of creation is going to be redeemed through the act of the resurrection of Christ. The power of God was seen in that, okay? Think it through from that when you're watching these things, and don't look at it from the secular perspective. Look at it from the nature of God. I've got a friend one time, I think I've said this before. If I have, I apologize, probably during a sermon. I have a friend one time, and we were sitting having breakfast one time, and uh, uh, he was contemplating, you know, the power of God or, you know, in relation to God. And then he found out that the, the cosmos, you know, what was it? Hubble went out and he said, these are not stars, they're galaxies. And he said, I just can't believe one God could do that. And my thought was, how great is the God that can do that? We're just looking at it from a different perspective, but you can't have two gods. You can logically understand that if you think it through. But there's a different perspective, and you need to just, when you look at things like that, when you look at the power of something or the beauty of a, a bumblebee and how it can pollinate things, and at the same time, it can develop honey and all the things that happen in this universe, if you look at it from the perspective of God and how he has the wisdom to do everything, everything, so that everything works properly, then you know how great God is, okay? And that is what, I know that that's, it sounds like it's a, a, a talk away from what we're talking about. It's not. It's exactly what Paul is referring to. It's the power of God. And when you look around it, it power and energy and, and dynamics and fluid dynamics and, you know, how th hydraulics and how everything works. He's aware of all of it at all times. Everything. Okay. This is a great God. It's a so great God. Yes. The honeybee and the butterfly land on the same flower. 
butterfly's gone. Right. The honeybee is there getting all that nectar. That's right. That's what you should do with the Bible. Don't be a butterfly. Don't be a butterfly, be a bee. Burke, <laughs> I don't think you heard Burke what he said, but he said the butterfly and the uh, bee will land on the same flower. The butterfly will get a little pollen on his leg, and he'll fly away and he'll pollinate something else. But the bee will not just get pollen on his leg. He'll get down and he'll get the nectar out of the flower. And while he's down there, he's got pollen wiped all over his body. And Burke said to be like the bee instead of being like the butterfly and just reading your Bible and, oh, I'm going to read it for 30 seconds today and I've done my job. Read it all the time. Immerse yourself in it so much that it just saturates you. Good analogy. Very good analogy. Okay. Uh, the greatest powers ever contemplated are endowed in him, meaning Jesus Christ. Because of this, we have the absolute assurance that we too will be resurrected just as he was. It is a guarantee that cannot fail. I mean, if the universe can hold itself together because God spoke it into existence and it's actually not holding itself together, he is the sustainer. It says that explicitly in Hebrews 1.3. If he can sustain the power of the universe, then he can also do it and keep his promise by raising you from the dead. I'll take you there so you don't think I made that up. And it's also in Colossians chapter 1. It says it in both of them. And Hebrews, uh, I've got to go back. I went too far. Hebrews, I'm 9, 8, 7. Um, Hebrews, there we are, Philemon. Hebrews 1, and it says in verse 3, who, speaking of Jesus Christ, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is the sustainer. He's not just the creator. As it says, he has in his last day spoken to us by his son, whom he, God, has appointed heir of all things, through whom Christ also he made the worlds. So Christ is the creator. He is the sustainer. And then I said there is another point where this is mentioned. It is, does anybody remember what I said? Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. That's right. And so we're going to go to um, Verse, uh, yes, I've got to find it, 15, and Burke, Burke said it's 20. Yes, I'm going to go to 19. For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. Oh, it's not. It's, um, it's verse 17, not 120. It's 117. I'm going to go back. All things were created through him. Same thought as Hebrews 1, 2. And the next verse, 117. And he is before all things. If he's before all things, and that means that there was nothing before him, which means he is God, he's the creator. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. Everything consists. And uh, as I know Jim thinks the same way I do about that, is that the word consist doesn't really, uh, the NIV does a great paraphrase of it, upholding all things by the power of his word. Is that what it says? Anyway, um, but the... Uh, uh, the word, if you want the word that explains Christ's role of maintaining the universe, it's subsist. By him, all things subsist. Everything is held together by his power. Held together. There you go. Held together is the NIV. Okay. But uh, the word consist, you know, you can think of this as consistent, very hard, and pudding is consistent, very, it, it, it can mean something different. Subsist doesn't mean something different. That's from the Darby translation. He picked a great word for it. By him, all things subsist. Okay, for now, we look to Christ with eyes of faith and to behold the majesty of God who stepped out of the eternal realm in order to restore us once again to intimate fellowship. This he did through Jesus Christ and this he continues to do now through him. Even now, 
all things are being brought to their fulfillment through Christ, who even now sits on heaven's throne. All power. Matthew 28, 18. All power belongs to Christ. It's confirmed all the way throughout the epistles. It's confirmed especially in the book of Revelation. And guess what? People deny that Jesus is God. They deny that Jesus is their creator. And, you know, and you take, um, I won't go get it, but I've got the New World Translation of the Bible back there, okay? Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you read their older translation of Colossians 1, which I just read, it will say, and through him, how does it say it? Um, uh, yes, um, through him all things were created. Um, oh, yes, it says through him all other things were created. They insert the word other, but they do bracket it, showing that it's an inserted word. Well, guess what the new New World Translation does? No bracket. It just simply says that by him all other things were created. Okay? They've changed the Word of God. They've inserted a word into the Word of God. They have not bracketed it, which would be acceptable if you, you know, wanted to believe that. I'm not saying that it's acceptable, but I'm saying that this is translator's preference to insert words at various times, and they usually will italicize it or they will offset it with brackets. The New World Translation of the Bible chose to put the word other in there, and then they chose to remove the brackets and say that Jesus Christ created all other things, which cannot even be inferred from that translation. What it, would that even mean? Well, they're saying that there's the creator who created, and then Christ created all other things. It's the only way that they can justify him not being God. But what they're saying, that violates the 12 first principles. One of the 12 first principles is known as the principle of contingency. Contingency means that there is only one God and a contingent being. And all a contingent being, this is a contingent being. This could not exist. The fact that it exists is great, but it, if God didn't want to create it, it wouldn't exist. Okay? Tell me something else that is a contingent being. Jim Dwyer is a contingent being. He could not exist. And as Jim just said, everything is contingent. Only God is not contingent. He is what we would call a necessary being. He is necessary. All else is contingent. He's spoken into existence. The principle of contingency says that only a necessary being can create. A contingent being cannot create. And if you think it through, it is correct. Contingent beings cannot create anything, and by putting the word other in there, they're saying that Christ is a contingent being, a created being, and that he created everything other than the initial act of creation. Two violations. It, two violations right there. So it, it, it is very poor theology, but that is what they must do to uphold their theology, which says that Jesus isn't God. Okay, so that's why they do. Yeah, that's one after another. One thing leads to another in poor theology. Okay, so. Um, he sits on heaven's throne with all power and authority. Okay, life application. Are you sure that there is ground beneath your feet? Anybody? Sure. You should be sure in your faith that Christ is all things under control as you are of the fact that the ground is really there. Actually, I would say more so. The ground is there, but it could not be there. But God's promises can never be nullified, ever. Okay? Don't doubt, but look to Christ who has gone before us into the heavenly places. All right. Faith is, the good example of faith is, I heard Billy Graham in a crusade years ago saying that faith is getting up on a stage and knowing that it's not going to collapse. 
or sitting in a chair and knowing that it's not going to buckle under you. He didn't say it exactly like that. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but that was the idea. Okay, I have faith that when I do certain things, nothing's going to be a bad result out of it. Okay, that's faith. And when you say, I have faith that that chair will hold me, you should have a lot more faith that Jesus Christ will keep his promises to you than that chair will hold you. I'll give you a good example. It just came to mind. Did anybody ever watch the movie The Patriot? One of my favorite movies. I love Mel Gibson movies. What did he do before he became a soldier again? He was a soldier, got out. He was living in his house, and he was doing something as a hobby. He made chairs. And he kept making chairs, and he'd sit on them, and they'd collapse. He could not make the chair right. The way that they used to make these Victorian age chairs with the bent wood and and he'd take it and he threw it and he had a whole pile of chairs over there where he kept not making them right. Okay. And eventually he made a chair right. And after that, he could have faith that the chair would hold him. Before that, he had no faith. So he'd very carefully seat himself on the chair. Okay. We don't need to be that way with Jesus. We don't need to worry if the chair is going to break. It's not. Jesus Christ is going to uphold everything for us forever. If the word says it, it will come to pass. Don't have doubts in your heart about Jesus. And, you know, that's what he said to his apostles. And they had seen him. And here, doubts are arising in their hearts. Okay, that should not happen. It should not happen. We should be able to say, I believe that Jesus has got this all under control and that what he said will come to pass. And don't believe people just because they're standing in the pulpit saying something. It does not mean that they're correct. And I hold the same true with me. Just because I say something does not mean that I am correct. Okay, that's why you now have the responsibility to go out and check. Okay, 121, please. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also the one to come. Okay, it's close, but I'm going to read it anyway. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Every name that's named, every name that's named, doesn't matter what name out there, Jesus is above that name. He is the name above all names. Okay, while reading this verse, in order to analyze it, this is true, I typed it, it was early in the morning, I raised my arms in victory. Yes! Who cannot get excited at such marvelous words? In this verse, Paul completes the very long and continuous thought that he began in verse Three. It's been a long time getting through these verses. To keep in context, the previous verse is cited with it here. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Here it is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. There are times where I just jump out of my seat typing these commentaries in the morning. I just love to do the Bible commentary. Poor Hidako, you know, the dogs start yapping and I'm like, please stop. I just, you know, I want to focus, but she gets up and she's got to take them out and there's eight of them going crazy. I, I don't want to lose the thought that's on my mind. Okay, um, let's see here. God worked the exceeding greatness of his power towards us in Christ. When his earthly mission was complete, the purpose of the gospels once again was to... Dealing with Israel. Dealing with Israel in fulfillment of the law. Right. He had to fulfill the law in order for the law to be annulled. Okay, it could not have been. It would still be enforced today if Christ did not fulfill it. That's the purpose of the Gospels, is to show that he was born without sin. It was to show that he was born under the law. 
God's standard for the people of Israel, a lesson for the people of the world. That is the purpose of law. Keep reminding yourself of that when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the words may sound great. And somebody asked me, another person asked a similar question this week. Uh, You know, I've been reading the Bible as you suggested. And I'm like, yes, I love hearing that. Okay. I got up to Jeremiah 31, uh, 29, where it says that, um, let me take you there so that I can show you. And uh, uh, 29.10, I think, is what it was. Um, uh, Let's see here. Now I don't remember what I was looking. Oh, Jeremiah. Okay. Um, I think it's Jeremiah 29.10. Where are we? Oh, Ezekiel. Jeremiah's before Ezekiel, Charlie. Okay. And um, just take me a second. Okay, there we are. 32.31. Okay, so Jeremiah 29. Yes. um, uh, Is it 14? Where was it? It's right in here. And it's um, where it says that, um, you know, Jeremiah, seek me and you will find me. Oh, yeah, at 12. Okay, I'll start in 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And she said, how do I know if this pertains to me or not? And I said, read the context. Who is he speaking? Who is speaking? Who is he speaking about? And what is the circumstances? And I said, are you in Babylon? Are you exiled from Israel? Now, it's a verse that people use all the time, and it comforts us. It gives us comfort to say that I am seeking the Lord, and I will find him when I seek him with all my heart. Okay, but the immediate context is that it is referring to Israel in exile, and we're not in exile. We are in Christ, okay? So we don't have to seek him with all our heart in that sense, okay? We do want to seek him with all of our heart, but I'm talking about in the sense that here we are in exile. I'm worried, am I going to get returned back to the land? The Lord said that you will. He said, stay there. Plant, build houses, and do what you're supposed to because you're going to be there for 70 years. It doesn't apply to us, okay? It does sound good, and don't get me wrong. It's the kind of thing that we can memorize and we can say, I know that the promises to Israel are true, and therefore I can have comfort in those words as well. Leave it at that, and don't say this applies to you, okay? And if a a pastor uses that to uh, tell you that it applies to you, then he is not handling the context properly. Always remember the context. That's the main thing to, uh, you know, I don't mean to keep saying the same things, but I want to make sure that people understand. Always check the context. Always. And if you have any doubts at all, the context is for us from the time of Christ's crucifixion until his return for us at the rapture. Fit us in there, and that'll be a good context. There are certain things, obviously, Peter's writing to the Jews, but he's writing to the Jews who are in the church. They're believers, okay? So we can understand that the context still applies to us in a certain way. There are certain things that he's saying, though, that are more directed towards him. And so you have to just kind of wind your way through the book of Hebrews. You've got to wind your way through the book of uh, 1 and 2 Peter, especially. Make sure that you think about what he is saying and who he's directing it to. Because there are times in Romans where Paul says, who are you, O Jew? Who are you, O Jew? So he's obviously speaking to the Jew. But it still pertains to us because it is a treatise on a doctrine that he is giving out. He's making a point about the Jew in contrast to the Gentile, and then he ties them both into one. Okay, 
But those words are specifically directed. You can't apply that to you because you're not a Jew. But the principle that he is giving, excuse me, applies to you. Everybody see that? He's making a general principle, but he's dividing it up so that you can understand what he is saying. The problem with hyper-dispensationalists is it never gets back to the fact that he is speaking to everybody. He's making a point. You know, it would be like me writing something. Uh, Paul does it in the book of Philemon. Who does he write to in the book of Philemon? No, he writes to Philemon. Okay? So what he is saying does not pertain to you. Okay? Directly. But indirectly, the entire epistle pertains to you. Does everybody see that? Hyperdispensationalism says, well, he's talking to the Jews, so we can take that first. Comp- By the time you're done with the New Testament, if you are a hyperdispensationalist, you've got nothing left. They've reduced it to such a teeny amount of information. That you, of course they want to do that. They don't have to learn theology then. They just give sermons on a couple of verses and life is easy. But when Paul writes and he says that Epaphroditus was sick and almost died, it's not talking about Timothy. He's speaking about Epaphroditus. But what he is saying is something that's instructional for everybody. Okay, so always make sure you understand the context and what is being spoken about and how it relates to the bigger picture. Good one. What's that? Not to us. Yeah, not to, but for. Sometimes it's he's not writing to you, but he's writing for you. And sometimes he's writing to you. It just depends on what he's saying. And it takes time to develop that theology. That's why I say keep reading the Bible. The more you read it, the more it will become clear to you. Okay? So, um, where was I? Uh, I read that, and uh, God worked his... Did we... Yeah, okay. God worked the exceeding greatness of his power toward us in Christ. When his earthly mission was complete, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. That's Paul's words. The words which are translated as principality and power give the idea of government and the authority committed to that government. Christ's position is above all such things. I know it doesn't seem that way to the people in Washington right now. They've elevated themselves above the Bible and uh, Christ himself, but that's the way it is. They are subject to him and they will remain subject to him and someday they will bow their knee to him. They may not think it's true, but they will and they'll account for every single thing. When Jesus said every idle word that a man may speak, he was speaking to Israel under the law. Well, guess what? They're going to be judged whether they're under the law or not. Christ is the standard. He is the one that fulfilled the law, and therefore he can judge any way he wants. Those people will be held accountable. Thank God that we are in Christ. Thank God for that. As there are both earthly and heavenly hierarchies, it signifies that he is the ultimate authority on earth and in heaven. He is God. The words might and dominion further describe the first two words. This might and dominion is the actual force and the moral force of dignity or lordship in which it is clothed. So you've got the principality and power, and then you've got the working of that might and dominion. That's Charles Ellicott's words. I'll read it again. The actual force and the moral force of dignity or lordship in which it is clothed. Okay? All governments and all of the power associated with them are far below the authority and power of Christ. That brings to mind what you told me about we were driving downtown one time and she was talking about Stalin's daughter. She became a Christian, I think. Anyway, she she described her father on his deathbed and he's there dying and he raised himself up 
and he shook himself at God, and then he died. I, he's going to be held accountable, right? He thinks that he was this great leader. He's just a nothing. He's a little speck, all right? Anyway, all governments and all of the power associated with them are far below the authority and power of Christ. Their ability to rule and the scope of their rule is finite. In contrast to this are Christ's might and dominion, both of which, both of which are infinite. I don't care how much Google figures out or how much a supercomputer can, or even a quantum computer can do. It's nothing. God is infinite. It doesn't matter how, if we had a billion quantum computers, all with the power to do a billion times more than one of our computers could do right now, and they're all hooked together, and they ran forever and forever and forever, it would never attain to an infinite. It's still finite, and God is infinite. It doesn't matter how much we learn in the ages to come or how long we live, we will never attain to an infinite. He will always be infinitely above us. Always. Okay? In contrast to this are Christ's might and dominion, both of which are infinite. Paul refers to this same idea several times in his epistles. Two, exam two examples are found first in Philippians 2 verse 9 which says Philippians 2 verse 9 Therefore, yes, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue, including Joseph Stalin and the people at Google, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I know they think they're not going to have to do that, but they are going to have to do that. And then in Colossians 2, Verse 10, it says, I'll start 9, for in him, Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All of the fullness of the Godhead. That means all of the power that spoke this universe into existence, all of the wisdom that it was involved in it, all of the time span, the eternal time span of the creation, because it's always going on, all of that is found bodily in Jesus Christ, who is the uh, bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And we worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it, it's terrible to think that we're not going to have dinner tomorrow or, you know, the car breaks down and somebody might come and hurt me. I, it's temporal. We're in this body and that happens. I understand. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that are worried about things as if it's, it's something that is beyond God's control. Where is God in this? Where's God in this? It's beyond control. I remember having that thought when I saw the uh, Twin Towers and they started to collapse. And I'm thinking of all those people that are still in there and they're just, they're so smashed now that you, they like find a little piece of hair of one person. That's all they find. Okay. That's it. And I think, how's he going to figure it all out? How's he going to figure it out? Uh, what a stupid thought. I mean, it just went through my head very quickly. And I thought, you know, he's got it all figured out. I don't need to worry about that. There's nothing that God can't figure out. He can figure all of it out. He can figure every single, every person he knows, he knows all about them and everything they ever did. None of it is lost to God. What? That's right. Every hair of our head is numbered. We don't need to worry about those things, but we get those thoughts in our hearts and we shouldn't. Okay? you got to put John 10.30 in there. John 10.30. Yeah, he and the Father are one. Absolutely. All, he is God. Paul's next words further show Christ's supremacy. He says that Christ's authority is over every name that is named. A name signifies a position, 
A name signifies a title or an area of authority and so on. When we think of a name, we think of everything that's tied up. When I say the name Donald Trump, all of a sudden you think of everything about Donald Trump that you know. Everything that you know about him comes to mind. That's what a name does. It tells us something. If I say Hollywood, all of a sudden something comes to mind. You have a long history of it, and you've got good, and you've got bad, and you've got perverse, you've got everything about Hollywood suddenly comes to mind. That's what names do, okay? And if somebody was to say Hobie, I don't know if it means anything to you, but if I heard the word Hobie, I think of sailboats, because when I was a kid, I had a Hobie cat, and that was the big thing back then. You'd have two pontoons, and you'd get up on one, and you'd, I'd ride all the way across the bay on one pontoon. It was great, okay? But that name signified something to me. That is what names do. We think of power, we think of position, we think of title, we think of authority. All of those things are tied up in a name. Here it says here, Christ's authority is over every name that is named. I don't care how much you think about the name of Jesus Christ, there will always be something more to come out. There's always going to be something more that you say, oh, it's just going to be forever. We're going to be amazed at the name of Christ. Everything. Okay. Um, if the name is given to something by another, guess what that means? Does anybody know what I'm coming at? If I give a name to somebody else or to something else, what does that imply? I have authority over that person. Okay. What did God tell Adam to do with the animals? Name them. You have authority over all these animals. They are in your hand. Okay. God didn't do that himself. He gave Adam the right to do it. He named the animals. Okay? Adam was given the right to name the animals. Thus, he was set as the authority over them. In the naming of his wife Eve, he was demonstrating authority over her. But he was also, at the same time, demonstrating faith in God. There's a lot tied up in the name of Eve. Okay? But the name signifies what is going on, who had the right over that person, etc. In Exodus 3.14, the Lord proclaimed his name. I am that I am. He is the self-existent one. Nobody can claim authority over him because he is before all things. And his name signifies his eternal nature. I am that I am. And therefore he is infinite in his being. Christ follows in the same way, proceeding from the Godhead. He has a name, but it is above all other names. This is confirmed in the words of Revelation 19. Let me take you there, and I'll read you what it says right there. Oops, I was on the right page right at the beginning. 19, 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Nobody named him. He Only he knows his name, and therefore he is uncreated. There's nobody that named him. He knows the name and nobody else knows it. Right there, that's a definite statement that he is God. That's the only conclusion that you can come to that. He has a name that is known to nobody else but him. He is God, okay? No authority can be claimed over Christ because of his unknown name. It identifies his infinite being and his eternal nature. Where all others are named in a knowable way, Christ is named in an unknowable way. Only as he reveals himself slowly and eternally in the stream of time can we comprehend his true being. Thus he is above 
every name that is named, Paul's words. And this is true, as Paul says, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Forever, forever we will be searching out the name of Jesus Christ. Okay? Christ is the eternal logos, meaning the word of God. He is the word of God. It's not logos, okay? It's an omicron, logos, okay? Christ is the eternal logos, the word of God. This age began at the creation of the universe, which he created. He was before it, and thus he is above it, including all that is in it. In the age, to, boy, you know what? You see these people that just blaspheme his name in the news all the time, these commentators, and they just, it, 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 it's just disgusting. They have no idea what they're dealing with. We're just here for a temporary span, and we're going to be gone. Prince Philip probably thought he was going to go on a long time, and he is dead now, okay? He did his time, he served his time, and now he's gone. And we're all going to be that way short enough. It seems like a long life until you get to the end of it, and you think, boy, this hasn't been long at all, right? We're just, we have, we're hopeless. Think of it, these people that are reviling against the Creator as if they have some power. They've got nothing. In the age to come, he will reveal himself eternally to his subjects, all named, all fully known, all subjected to him. We will ponder that name, which is above every name for all eternity, and yet we will never fully know it. There will always be something more of himself to reveal to his creatures, meaning us, always. Life application. Take time to hail the name of Christ, the eternal word of God, and don't stop. Eternity itself will be filled with the ceaseless praises of our heavenly Lord. Forever, forever we're going to be praising him. I, we can't even imagine. And that's coming up in chapter 2, verse 7, 4 through 7. We're going to see that again. Okay, we're going to be thinking about this forever. The glory of what God has done for us. Okay, 122. Wait, wait. Oh. Lutzer today. Lutzer. He said, I like to preach. He said that. Yeah. And he says, this word is inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. I've I, I preached 20 years here at this church. He said, I've got a lot more to preach. I'm telling you word, what. This word just gets bigger and bigger. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. I like, that's what, when people, you know, like at 7-Eleven, they see me, I always say, call me preacher. If you're going, don't call me pastor. I, you know. I'm a preacher. That's what I like. Everything else is just kind of, you know, it's, it's thrown in there. But I like the fact that I can preach the word of God. That's what I love. You know, anyway. Oh, boy. Okay, uh, let's see here. Boy, I'm so, I hate to say it. All you people that are up north that just got back up there, if you're watching right now, I'm so glad you're gone. <laughs> it, it has been just brutal. I'm telling you what, this time of year, I, yeah, although I, I really regretted it. Over the past 10 years, 15 years, or I've been doing this for 20 or 25 years, but over the past 10 years or so, I just get so burned out picking up the junk people throw. Oh, you know that at the north end of the parking lot, there's a little sign that says, thank you for coming to Southbridge Mall. It's been there 35 years. Somebody kung fu'd it last night. That thing was in pieces all over the place. Yeah. Anyway, so that goes to the scrap house on uh, Saturday. But um, uh I don't remember what I was going to say now. I, I just, oh yeah, the uh, Northerners, they come down here and, and uh, I, for years, I mean, this has been at least 10 years and maybe longer. I've been saying, Lord, I just wish we'd have an economic collapse so that they wouldn't come. And last year I felt so guilty. I felt so guilty. When, I'm out there 
Nobody. I'm the only person at the mall every single day. Not one other person. There's two old people that would come. I got four garbage cans to take out every morning. And these two old people, they never locked themselves down. They came to 7-Eleven every day and got coffee. You see them at the north end of the mall drinking. What's that? I never saw him during the lockdown. But these two old people. And so every single day I'd go and there were two coffee cups in the entire mall to take out every single day. I'm telling you, this past week, I've taken out so much garbage. And, you know, if the garbage bag gets a hole in it, it's going down your back. Oh, it's just, oh, it's horrifying. I just, I'm so glad they're gone. No, they're not. They are, they are here. They are here. But I'm telling you what, they are not nearly like they were. If you go out, you can get over the bridge in two minutes instead of 25 or 30 or an hour. It's, oh, it's great. Yeah. Going out. I told you, Tuesday, they leave. They leave. It was a week later this year because uh, Easter was early. So one, one extra week that went, but Tuesday every year, the Tuesday after Easter, but this year one week later. Okay, we got to go on. 122. Okay, 22 or? 122. Okay. Okay, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Okay, here we go. I'm going to take you back to Psalm 8. And let's see here. Psalm oh, I went a little too far there, Charlie. Boy, it's tough when you use bleep. I gotta stop doing this. It's Psalm eight, and I think I want what verse six. Okay. Yes, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. The idea of placing all things under the feet goes back to that psalm in the old testament. These words from the psalm speak of man, but in the greater sense, they speak of Christ, who took on the nature of man. Adam, meaning man, fell and lost his right to the world. Christ came to reclaim that. Through his work, he has been granted all power and all authority. In this, the he, this, this phrase here, or this verse here, the he is emphatic. He, emphatic, meaning God, put all things under his, meaning Jesus, feet. He under him, okay? The meaning is that all things are in subjection to him. Not because he was simply set over these things, but because God has granted him these things as a gift. Christ has all authority over all things. The next words show a surprising concept which should not be missed. God, here it is, Paul's words, gave him to be head over all things to the church. All things are under his feet, and he is the head over all things to the church. What this means is that we are, as Paul explains in Romans 8, 17, joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs with Christ. If that doesn't humble you, I can't imagine what else could. The next verse will bear this out, but even without it, if Christ is the head, then the church must be, as verse 23 will show, his body. Everybody see the logic there? Therefore, we see the exceptional magnitude of the inheritance we possess because of Christ. We are subject to him as our head, but all things are below us as we are members of his body. This takes us back to the authority of man at the very beginning. God gave us dominion over the animals of the earth, he gave us the right to subdue the earth and to fill it. We were subjected to God, but we were granted authority below him. The devil gained control over that, and man has been subjected to him. However, 
Christ regained that control. Now all who are in him, meaning in Christ, are again a part of the original intent for creation. What you read in Genesis has all the bearing in the world on our status right now. A man, meaning Christ, is its head, and we are his body. We share in the inheritance of what Christ has obtained. It is truly a marvelous thing which God has done for us in Christ. And we got, do we have time? Yes, we have time for one more. We're going to finish this chapter. Life application. When you see the wicked advancing in the world system and seemingly getting away with their wickedness, which I hate, don't get me wrong, I get so, I get so frustrated at it, don't let it trouble you. So I'm violating my own admonition to you. I get so angry at these people. They will have their moment of ease and supposed power, but they will be swept away like the dust beneath your feet. You know what? And I always try to qualify this in my own mind, even though I didn't say it here. If that person comes to Christ, that arrogant guy, the same thing happens as if he gets thrown into hell. Either way, you feel the weight of God upon you. It's much rather have him be saved with that weight of God upon him. But if he's not saved and he dies in arrogance, he's going to have the weight of God upon him. It's just going to be in a different position. But we all should feel that at some point is that every person is going to have that weight upon them. Thank God that we have been given the option of choosing that and accepting it. I remember when I found out what God did for me, I felt this big. I mean, just nothing, just nothing. Our inheritance is so far superior to what they think they have that there's simply no comparison at all. They think they have it. They're riding around in big cars and they've got billions of dollars and they're, they, they've got the world at their uh, snap of their fingers. It's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. Don't let it worry you. 123 and we'll be done for today. That's right. The hearts of the sons of men fully set in them to do evil. That's exactly right. Ecclesiastes 8, what? 11. 11. And that's the thing. We have to have justice. If we don't have justice, then the wickedness in the heart will just grow. And that's what's happening right now in this nation because there is no justice or there's unfair justice. You got justice for some and not for others. And you're absolutely right about that. Okay, um, 123. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Okay, his body. The meaning of this verse is one which is highly debated, and the wording is somewhat obscure. It should be taken together with the previous verse for context. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul says that it is the church which is his body. John Chrysostom says that the complement of the head is the body, and the complement of the body is the head. Christ Jesus is fully God and fully man. In his deity, there is no lack. He is a member of the Godhead, and they are in eternal fellowship and harmony with one another. In his humanity, there needs to be something to complement who he is. It would make no sense to come as a human if there were no humans who would be affected by his coming. As I said in a sermon a week or two ago, is that, yes, uh, it was the one where uh, uh, Sergio emailed me about Colossians one uh, twenty, I think it is, where it says, in him is every yes and in him is the amen. And the pastor that Sergio was listening to said that, he was saying that that means that it's all about us and we should be seeking out our good. And I said, it has nothing to do with us. 
It has nothing. It's talking about everything is in Christ, and then we are the recipients of it. And I did qualify it and say there would be no need for Christ to come if we weren't here. But that's not the point of it. The point of it is the glory of God. God will get the glory, and he did it through the giving of his son. Yeah, Easter sermon. Thank you. We, We are just the recipients of it. The ultimate point of all of this is for God to receive the glory that he is due. And that came through the giving of Christ. Okay. Now, I just quoted, before I go on, we got three minutes. I quoted John Chrysostom. I understand that John Chrysostom and John Calvin and all these other people have said a lot of things that don't make any sense. Doesn't matter. If somebody says something that's correct, you cite them. Okay. So don't send me an email that John Chrysostom said that, you know, angels are sleeping with humans and they form Nephilim or something crazy like that. Okay. Don't send me that. I don't care. John Chrysostom said something that made sense and I quoted him. Okay, John Calvin has it times two. I'll cite John Calvin when John Calvin is right. Okay, but humanity has fallen and needs a redeemer. In coming as their redeemer, he would be incomplete without a group of redeemed. Exactly what I said in the Easter sermon. Here it is. He is also the savior, king, high priest, and so on. A savior without saved would be no savior. A king without a kingdom and subjects is not really a king. It is the church which fills these roles in which complete who Christ is. This does not mean that he is lacking in anything in his being, but that his roles are complete in those whom he heads. See that? He's our king. Well, that means that we're part of his kingdom. And he wouldn't have a kingdom if we weren't here. Ultimately, though, God created us so that we could be his kingdom. It's all about the glory of God. But we have to put everything in perspective. In order to show that this is the case and that it is not Christ who is lacking in his being, Paul immediately follows up with the thought that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is the church which fills up or makes complete the roles of Christ. His glory and his power are seen in the fact that he is our head. Without such a body, these would only be known to himself. But as his body, we are able to acknowledge them. And yet, it is Christ who fills all in all. He is transcendent over all things, and it is he who does the filling of the church. Charles Ellicott states that we are infinitely more incomplete without him than he without us. He is the vine, we are the branches. Together we form a whole, but the branches are dependent on the vine. He was the crucified one, we were crucified with him. He is the glorious one, we too now share in his glory. Christ is the head, we are the body. Life application, yes, just on time. God did not need to create, but he did. He became the creator when he created. Likewise, Christ did not need to redeem, but when he, but he did. When he redeemed us, he became the redeemer. In all things, Christ is the preeminent one through the things he has accomplished. Let us never forget that Christ truly is our all in all. Heavenly Father, thank you for the fact that we can serve Christ Jesus. We've been given that right because you sent him to redeem us back to yourself. You had given man all of that authority and you put everything under his feet and we immediately squandered it away. But Christ came and got it all back. And it's all in its proper place now because he is at the head 
and we are in subjection to him. And so help us to remember our position and let us be like that guy that we read about at the beginning of this class today. They're drowning in the sea and still worried about other people coming to Christ. Help us to have that same heart for the lost, even in this world where it seems so hard to want to evangelize some people. They need you too. Help us to remember that and to be willing to speak to anybody, even if they seem like they're unredeemable to us. They are not to you. Give us that heart, O oh God. Help us to have a good couple days and then to come back here and to meet together in joy and fellowship on our Sunday service. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. John Mead. What's that? John Mead. John Mead. Harper. 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 John Harper. And who's John Mead? Maybe he was the guy who was bragging. He was the, he was the last convert.